The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, meet talking book narrator Kristen Allison and what did ACB and Google learn from a recent survey of blind and visually impaired computer users? Welcome to ACB Reports for May 2012. Last fall, the American Council of the Blind partnered with Google to conduct a survey of blind and visually impaired computer users. During the legislative seminar held in February of this year, Eric Bridges, Director of Advocacy and Government Affairs for the American Council of the Blind, along with Pratik Patel, Chair of the ACB Information Access Committee, discussed the results of the survey. In early 2011, we developed a plan to reach out to several different tech companies to try and develop relationships. These particular tech companies were producing products or providing services that many, many blind people had challenges. And the first company that we reached out to was Google. Google had in previous versions of certain products made their products accessible and then for whatever reason with the new release they completely broke the accessibility component of products like Google Docs, issues with Gmail, and it was our belief that by reaching out, attempting to develop a relationship and offer the enormous capabilities of our members as assistance to Google, that some of these problems could be solved. I'm happy to report that Google is doing better with accessibility, but they're not where they need to be. In this endeavor, um, I was joined by Pratik Patel, ACB's Information Access Committee Chair. And at CSUN last year, we met with Google face-to-face -face for the first time, the head of the accessibility team and uh, a couple of other individuals. We were brainstorming about the community and what the community looked like in terms of technological savvy, socioeconomic status in terms of how old the technology, how many versions old was it? And really it was Google that wondered this. They hadn't really gotten a good feel for what the community looks like. The average everyday technology user who happens to be blind. What kind of technology are they using? How old is it? How often do they update their technology? What challenges do they have in accessing technology? Do they use commercial, off-the-shelf technology? Do they use assistive technology? And so what occurred over the next several months was we developed a survey, which I'm guessing many of you took, because it wound up being about 953 individuals from around the world that took this survey. And it was a very comprehensive survey. The survey closed in uh, early October. And since then, we've been working with a professor at the City University of New York and Google to look at the data. And uh, it has been a really interesting readout thus far. And there will be more to come, and Pratik can talk to you a little bit about that. So let me ask Pratik Patel to come and speak with you. Again, Pratik is the chair of the Information Access Committee for ACB. 
Eric talked about some of the reasons why Google wanted to do the survey. Now let me tell you some of the reasons why we wanted to do the survey. For many, many years, we've been talking about the computer usage that our population has or doesn't have. We have been talking about things like, what does our older population look like? How much computer skills and comfort level do people have with computers as they age? Or since computers are pretty much of a recent phenomenon, how comfortable do people feel with computers as compared to younger folks? We wanted to answer these questions. So the questionnaire was developed with that in mind. We obviously didn't cover everything that we wanted. What we did cover got us some really fascinating results. And one of the reasons why we're sharing these results with you is because what you'll hear has really fascinating policy implications as we go forward, not only for the work that ACB does as a national organization, but even internally, how we communicate, how we disseminate information to you as members. First, let me thank all of you who took the survey uh, and took the time to provide us with feedback. The first section we had was some demographic information. Let me start by looking at the country. Um, I'm going to throw a lot of things at you here, a lot of figures, a lot of statistics, but just keep in mind this is just the tip of the iceberg. We haven't even touched at some of the core things that we requested, so this is overview. We will be not only making the data available to those of you who are data geeks and want to actually get into looking at and analyzing your own data, but we'll be publishing papers by partnering with Google in things like JVIV, other journals, because this was rigorously done. We'll also be hoping to publish more information in the forum as well. So let's take a look at where the data came from. 76% of the respondents were from the US, and about 87% of the respondents were from countries that speak English as their primary language, and the rest from other countries with other languages. Age distribution, and this is really fascinating. 20 and below, 5% of the people. 20 to 29, 18% of the people. 30 to 39, 19% of the people. 40 to 49, 18% of the people, 50 to 59, 23%, 60 to 69, 13%, 70 to 79, 3%, and over 81%. So we were really surprised by the number of people who are over 40 or 50. If we look at the number of people who responded who are over 50, 41% of the total of people who are over 50. The other thing we learned is that this data is internally consistent. And what that means in statistical terms and analysis terms is that we look at other questions that we intentionally asked, you know, things like when did you lose your vision? What year? Uh, and we specifically asked that question that way so that we can make sure that the data that we got in the other questions was accurate. So this data is really internally consistent and what we report here is pretty consistent in terms of the age group. Gender, uh, this was a pretty clear distribution, uh, about 60% male, 39, some odd percent female, um, and these are rounded numbers. In terms of functional limitations, and these were disability questions, 77% of the people were legally blind, 
61% completely blind. There were 32% low vision. And these categories are not exclusive. So they will not add up to be 100%. People had the option of choosing more than one disability. And we'll give you more data on their disability statistics some other time uh, because we really get into some minutiae here. The question that really fascinated us was whether you lost your sight gradually, or were you born blind? Uh, about 43% of the people responded uh, who said they did lose their sight gradually. Highest education level, again, fascinating data. Elementary, 2%. 29% at high school as their highest level of education, which surprises us. Vocational, 5%. Associates, 7% of the people. Bachelor's degree, 30%. Master's, 22%. And 5% with doctorates. So pretty wide distribution, but at the same time, important as well. 14% of the people are currently in school. More than 70% of the people do use assistive technology or need services and are given those services in school or were given those services in school. The next question is about their degree, and what we've done here is collapse them into two categories, helping professions and IT. Helping professions are, you know, social workers, uh, things like that, and what we're seeing here is that helping professions, as we categorize them, are more than 42% of the people. And even IT, this really surprised us as well, and maybe shouldn't have surprised us, was over 41%. It could be a self-selective group of people who answered the questionnaire. The number that we often say in terms of employment numbers for people who are blind or visually impaired, we typically say that 70% of the people are employed. This survey doesn't seem to bear that out. In fact, the number is split, 50-50. 50% of the people who answered the survey said, yes, they're employed. 50% of the people said they were not employed. And 20% of the people who did say that they're employed said they own their own business. So that is a number that really fascinates us as well. Now we get into some of the questions about computers and assistive technology. Computer access, uh, somebody who owns a computer, 95% of the people who responded said that they own a personal computer. And that could include a laptop, a tablet computer. It could include a desktop as well as a netbook. And about 5% of the people said that they own multiple personal computers. You'll be fascinated to know that funding for personal computers, 82% of people actually pay for it themselves. VR pays for about 24%. Employer, 11%. And school, about 4%. One of the hardest things that people find the question we asked was, what would happen if you had to replace a computer? What would be the hardest thing? And of the people who responded, the highest number was people who said if they needed to prove eligibility for assistance from VR or some other agency. And that would be the hardest thing. Now let's get into some questions like screen readers and magnifiers. Again, I'm going to give you highlights here. Screen readers, more than 70% use JAWS or have used JAWS. More than 35% have used NVDA, which is an open source screen reader, a number that really surprised us and really thrilled us because we want people to use NVDA. 
29% use window eyes, about 15% use system access, and about 28% use the Mac. Magnifiers, the top ranker was Zoom Text, more than 80%, uh, Magic and other less than 20%. Uh, for OCR, both Kurzweil and, and Open Books seem to be pretty equal. Yep. The other thing that we asked was, what do you feel comfortable with if you either use a Mac or Windows with, with your Office productivity software? People told us that even though the assistive technology comes built in to the Macs, the people who, who use Windows feel a lot more comfortable than the people who use Macs. That surprised us because the community of people who use Macs are really enthusiastic and really, really, uh, they tend to be really, really, or claim to be really, really comfortable. These results don't seem to bear that out. Mobile devices, more than 60% use iPhones. The most popular tend to be iPhones and Nokia devices. Um, Nokia, not, not so much anymore. For web productivity software, as we expected, most people use Google software, including Gmail, Google Docs. They reported that they had some problems with them, but they still end up using them, uh, including for personal use. Actually, more than 70% use them for personal use. About 25% use them for school or work-related reason. Social networking. More than 70% of the respondents said that they use social networking, including Twitter, Facebook, and Google+, as well as LinkedIn. So I have a lot more information here on that. Um, but with that, I'm going to stop and conclude with this. The people who responded to this survey seem to be a lot more sophisticated than we claim as an organization that they are. Now, there are some caveats to that, especially the fact that they may be a self-selected sample, people who responded just because they could. And that may be one of the reasons. Um, we gave people the option to use the telephone to respond to the survey. We had a person available who took responses. And actually, a little more than 10% of the people took that option. Most of the people did not. So it may bear that out. However, we need to keep that in mind. OK, Eric says one question. Was there any uh, interesting pieces regarding Braille? Braille is not as much of a dying medium as we think it is. Um, A lot of people use refreshable Braille displays. As we correctly assume, the trouble with Braille displays is the prohibitive cost of them. So most people who responded and said that they feel comfortable purchasing uh, and replacing assistive technology, including their screen readers, find that they cannot replace their Braille displays or their Braille note-taking devices. So Braille is used by a lot of people there should be more, and there should be affordable options so that people can replace their technologies when they need to. And yes, rehab does pay significant money. We don't have specific figures, but rehab, if I recall correctly, more than 40% of the rail purchases were made by rehab. But considering what we think rehab pays, 40% is a low number. Read more about this survey in the Braille Forum, the magazine of the American Council of the Blind. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports.
one of the most popular events at each annual conference and convention of the American Council of the Blind is the chance to meet a talking book narrator. Kristen Allison, a narrator for talking book publishers in Denver, addressed the assembly during the 50th annual conference and convention in Reno last July. She was introduced by ACB secretary and frequent contributor to ACB radio, Marlena Lieberg. One of the things I love about Wednesdays is I get to introduce a friendly and familiar voice each year. And how much do we love our talking book narrators, you guys? They certainly enrich our lives. They bring characters into our lives and our hearts and our imaginations that I think if you just look at the printed word, you just don't get the same thing. Do you agree? Help me make welcome today a favorite voice whom we all love from the talking book narrator company in Denver, Colorado. Our friend, someone we all know, we all love, Ms. Kristen Allison. Thank you so much for having me today. I just teared up a little bit because this is really a privilege for me. I'm so honored to be here. It's also a bit frightening (laughs) for me. I spend a lot of my time in a tiny isolated recording booth with just one other person on the other side of the glass with headphones on. So this is a bit overwhelming for me, but really wonderful. I've been a narrator for about 15 years now which I can't believe. I still feel like the new kid, and I still sort of am. Most of the narrators who are at our studio have been there longer than I have. Shortly after college, I was still trying to figure out what to do with myself and my shiny new degree in acting. And in the meantime, I was doing some local theater. One night after a performance, I was chatting with some people in the lobby, and a woman came up to me that used to be friends with my mother when I was a kid. And some of you might know her as well, or at least know her voice. Her name is Pam Ward. And Pam had seen the show that I was in. And after catching up for a while, she suggested that I submit an audition to become a narrator for Talking Book Publishers. The approval process wasn't the quickest thing. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of work for me. So I ended up working as a monitor as well, being the person on the other side of the glass with the headphones. And I'm really so glad that I had that opportunity to work with and listen to and learn from some really great talents. People like Bob Askey and John Rayburn and Merwin Smith and Mary Woods. And one of my personal favorites, Yvonne Fair Tesler. Yvonne had the most amazing, lovely voice and style. And she could read for pages and pages and pages without stumbling or breaking and really draw me into a story and make me think it was the best story ever written. And suddenly I was brought back to reality by her stopping and throwing the book down and saying, this book is a piece of junk. <laughs> and I would always go, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I thought I was really liking it. Um, 
I learned from her, I hope, to do my best to make whatever I'm recording, whether it's something I really enjoy or something I really don't enjoy, sound like a great work. People like Chuck Benson and Bob Boots. To this day, I still think of Bob Boots whenever I'm recording a magazine table of contents. He had this signature way of recording the zip code for the NLS that I still hear in my head every time I say the words out loud, which is Washington, D.C., 20542. <laughs> I got to listen and learn from all of them, as well as many that are still recording and who I consider my friends. Jill Ferris, David Hartley Margolin, Jake Williams, Jim Zeiger, Bill Wallace, Gabriela Cavallero, Eric Sandvold, and Martha Harmon Pardee. I am so fortunate to have known these people and learned from them. And I am so fortunate to have found work that I enjoy and that I hope touches people in some way. And I am so fortunate to not have been waiting tables for the past 15 years after that degree in theater. Thank you again for reminding me today of my great good luck. I must say that much of what I record is material I wouldn't think to pick up and read on my own. And many times, to be honest, that's for good reason. It stinks. <laughs> However, I have found that I'm more open to genres of fiction than I was years ago. Science fiction, for example, and fantasy, which I never thought I would like, and now find that they're some of the stuff I really enjoy. I'd like to think that my exposure to all these different styles has opened me up, made me learn new things, made me enjoy more things readily, more easy to enjoy, easy to please. Anyway, it seems that vampire books are all the rage these days, and we've seen many of them pass through the studios. There's actually one waiting for me on the shelf when I get back. I can say with a degree of certainty that the book from which I'm about to read is something I would not pick up on my own, nor the first six books in the series that I've recorded as well. I have found, though, that they are pretty entertaining, and I've gotten kind of attached to the characters. So from Love Bites... Vampire Kisses, Book 7. One, ghoulish guest. It was a deadly kiss, the kind of kiss that stole my breath, forced my heart into overdrive, left me hopelessly weakened and desperately gasping for more. The kind of kiss where I felt as if I'd die if I ever ended it. I, Raven Madison, was in terminal bliss. Alexander, my vampire boyfriend, and I were nestled together in the dusty depths of the mansion's basement, passionately clinging to each other like a broken spider web. I'd transform the wine cellar into a ghastly haunt as a present for him. I wanted him to have an alternative macabre sanctuary when he needed to retreat from painting in his attic room. After Alexander's parents returned to Romania, I had decided to once again give the mansion a feminine touch. Upon moving a portrait for storage in the basement, I stumbled across something I'd never seen before. Behind the staircase and toward the north wing of the house, I found an arched wooden door secured with a heavy wooden beam. I had no idea what lay on the other side. And since Alexander was upstairs creating a masterpiece and I didn't want to disturb him, I paced in front of the door, deliberating whether to wait until he was finished. My impatience got the best of me, so I figured a quick peek wouldn't hurt anyone. It took all my strength to pry open the beam, but less to open the rusty door. 
What lay on the other side was a dark, dusty, and chilly room. I was awestruck. The floor was made of uneven stones and the arched ceiling and narrow walls of gray bricks. Centuries-old Romanian and other European bottles were evenly stacked on dozens of wooden racks. On closer inspection, some of the bottles appeared different from the Cabernets and Merlots I'd seen resting on the three-tiered metal rack in the Madison family kitchen. Curious, I lifted one of the Sterling's bottles from the shelf to inspect it further when I felt an icy shadow behind me. I gasped. Slowly, I turned around to find Alexander standing in the doorway. I held out the bottle, which was shaking in my hand. He nodded his head, and it was then I knew. These bottles weren't filled with wine. They were filled with blood. And now, a month later, the wine, or rather blood cellar, also housed votives, a portable DVD player, and an amorously entangled mortal and vampire. As the candelabras dripped blood-red wax, my body melted around Alexander's. He, in turn, held me in the clutches of his strong, pale arms. The cool air of the cellar only added to the chills dancing up and down my spine from Alexander's tantalizing fingers. His deep, dark eyes stared boldly into mine, his fangs gently grazing my neck. For a moment, I was tempted to pull him into me so hard he would be forced to sink his teeth into my flesh. Then I'd be a vampire forever for eternity. But as I stared back at him, I knew that that wouldn't be fair. The quiet and reclusive Alexander had already shared so much with me, his family, his nemesis, his home. He had to be ready to take me completely into his world, just as much as I was ready to be taken. While I contemplated my plunge into the underworld, three hard knocks came from above the rustic ceiling and echoed off the basement staircase walls. I wasn't about to end our embrace, but Alexander pulled away. I fingered his metal chain-link necklace and gently drew him back toward me. He leaned in for another kiss, and I closed my eyes. As I waited for his lips to touch mine, three loud bumps echoed again. I opened my eyes to find Alexander gazing at the door instead of me. The mansion door slowly creaked open, and I waited anxiously to see who was brave enough to be standing in the shadows on the broken steps. Candlelight streamed out from the mansion, partially illuminating an unfamiliar figure. I craned my neck to get a better glimpse of the stranger, a handsome guy, appearing to be around Alexander's age, with wildly wiry short blonde and brown dreadlocks, boot-shaped sideburns, goatee, and a thin ashen face stood before us. Tattoos crept out from his unbuttoned vintage white shirt and gold earrings hung from his ears. He had a glistening gaze and an alluring smile. Dude, where have you been? The visitor asked enthusiastically. Sebastian. Alexander was shocked. My boyfriend was familiar with the guy I thought was a stranger. What are you doing here? That was talking book narrator Kristen Allison. Her presentation was edited to fit the time constraints of this program, but you can hear it in its entirety. Just go to the On Demands page of acbradio.org and choose the 2011 Convention Archive. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. 
Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.